allow me to open us up in prayer, and then we will jump in. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to be able to meet together again this morning, and the privilege it is to be able to um, just have the means of being able to gather, have the freedom of being able to gather, and to now spend this time digging into your word. Thank you for what we just heard from Pastor Brett and the encouragement that was. And you, we just ask that you would um, use your word in each of our hearts and each of our lives to transform us more to the image of your Son. Help us to carefully apply everything that's in this passage and um, take it home and, and live it, not just uh, hear it. So help me to speak clearly as I ought and be with every uh, listener here that they would be engaging with these things thoughtfully and just, uh, again, applying these things to each life. Lord, we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be continuing our series through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that we have. He references a, a previous letter that we'll actually be looking at today when he says uh, something that was misunderstood, a quote from a previous letter. But this is, in our Bibles, the first letter to the Corinthians that we'll be continuing our study of. The question I want to start off with is how seriously, and ask this for yourself because it, it plays out in practice, how seriously should we prioritize reconciliation with our brother or sister in Christ? Something's gone awry between you and a brother or sister in Christ. How seriously should you pursue reconciliation? How willing should we be to bring a secular legal to bring in secular legal counsel in an effort to get our own way, aka suing a Christian? These are the sorts of questions that the first part of this letter addresses. There's, there's issues and disputes among Christians. How are you going to go about solving them? And those in Corinth decided they would solve those issues by suing each other, essentially, taking each other to court. Once we talk about that, we'll look at verses 9 through 20, which return to the topic of addressing sin within the church. Obviously, the, the sin that Paul addressed at the beginning is a sin too, but he kind of takes a little bit of an aside at the beginning of chapter 6. And then verses 12 through 20 will narrow in on sexual immorality, and it'll provide great insight into why the believer must always be on guard against this uniquely dangerous category of sin. It's got a couple places we're kind of pull off and have discussion, but with that, we'll, we'll jump right into the first eight verses on judgment as believers. Who would you see as the highest authority in settling a dispute between you and another Christian? That's essentially what this comes down to, is, is who do you see as the highest authority? Do you see it as yourself? Do you see it as the government? Or do you see it as God? If God is the highest authority, then why would we turn to the ungodly to seek resolution for something among a brother or sister in Christ? Let's read the first eight verses here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. I'll be in the ESV. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. 
to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. It's as if at the beginning of this passage, he says, speaking of judging, because at the end of last chapter, if you remember in chapter five, Paul has given the Corinthians instructions regarding passing judgment on a particular sin situation and concluded with a rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians 5.12 that we read last week or two weeks ago. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So he's just talked about judgment and then he goes, speaking of judgment, that reminds me, there's this situation going on in Corinth. In chapter six, he shifts from talking about the different sin issues in the Corinthian church and he was likely reminded of this as he gives instructions regarding judgment. And that's what he jumps into at the beginning of this. That's why it kind of feels like a little bit of a shift and then he goes back to talking about what he was talking about in chapter five. It's important as we look into this to just ask the question, what sort of grievance is being addressed here by Paul? Because there's, there's one way that this could be taken that could really, really get confusing. Because if Paul were talking about criminal cases, like things that are like absolutely illegal are happening within the church, his instruction isn't like, oh, just kind of like handle that internally. Um, some churches have tried to do that to great detriment of individuals that have been harmed. That's not what's being talked about here. There's in, in the Expositor's Bible Commentary, yeah, the author here, Harold Marr, writes, in speaking of Christians taking other Christians to court, Paul does not specify any criminal cases because he teaches elsewhere that these must be handled by the state. That's Romans 13, 3 through 5, where Paul writes here, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So God's design is for human governmental authority to be used in, in the, the punishment of criminal cases. Those that do wrong, receive wrong. That's not the sort of dynamic that Paul's talking about here when he talks about disputes among believers. He's not talking about criminal cases. He's talking about internal disputes that then people are dragging people to court over. So what he highlights as the, the reason why this is so puzzling, he points to the future responsibilities of judgment that are going to be entrusted to believers. And he's, he shows that that implies that we as believers should be more than competent to settle issues internally. Those, those issues of, of someone wrongs you, you go to that brother and, and seek that reconciliation. Or you've wronged a brother, you go to that brother and seek reconciliation. And what he points to, again, is the future responsibility of judgment that believers will have. Among many doctrines that we don't think much about, this is one of them. And it's one of them because Scripture doesn't talk a ton about it, but there's a few passages that we'll look at. MacArthur, in his study Bible, says, because Christians will assist Christ to judge the world in the millennial kingdom, there are more, they are more than qualified with the truth, the spirit, the gifts, and the resources they presently have in him to settle small matters that come up among themselves in this present life. Two passages from Revelation that Russ recently taught through. Revelation 2, 26-27, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As 
when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. That's instructions. It's a promise given to believers. And then Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. And then Daniel 7.22, zooming back and then looking forward with that prophetic book, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So rather than resolving things internally, they were suing each other before unbelievers. That's the situation that Corinth was in. And the response to these internal issues revealed internal heart issues in the lives of those there. And the, the main thing that I think this passage illustrates, his conclusion in 7 and 8 really is, is just profound. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. He just makes that statement. But then he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Think about that question. Why not rather suffer wrong? What in your heart would prevent you from wanting to suffer wrong? We all don't like suffering wrong, but we have to realize it is better, and this is your first blank, it is better to suffer wrong. It is better to suffer wrong while, do, while being righteous than to defend oneself at the cost of wronging others. It's better to suffer wrong, to be wronged, than to wrong someone else. Two verses highlight this. Matthew 5, 11, where Jesus says, blessed are you, blessed are you, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. It's better to suffer wrong than to do wrong. And then 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I just want to pause there. We love that verse, right? That's like, oh, always be ready to give an answer, apologetics verse. I learned that one. I memorized that one. I know I need to be ready to give a defense. Context of this is talking about suffering Give a defense, suffering. The reason for the hope that is in you becomes revealed in the context of suffering. The reason someone's asking you, why do you have hope right now? Why are you okay with being wronged like this? Why are you okay with this sort of suffering happening in your life? That's gonna be the context in which someone says, why do you have this hope? That's why you need to be ready to give an answer for the reason of hope in you. Verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, not if, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Here it is again. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Again, multiple verses that highlight this reality that Paul is pointing to in 1 Corinthians 6. But he's specifically talking about just the horribly detrimental impact that this infighting and wronging each other within the church was having. Because it's just, even the fact that there's lawsuits, he says in verse 7 and 1 Corinthians 6, the fact that there's lawsuits against one another, already a defeat. Why not rather suffer wrong?
I want to ask a couple questions and dig into these at tables. Um, why do internal disputes and court cases among believers mar the witness of the church? Second question, what does this passage teach about the importance of pursuing reconciliation with fellow believers? And then the last question, why is it better to be wronged and defrauded than to publicly dispute with a brother or sister in Christ? And how can we cultivate in our own hearts a willingness to be wronged? What are barriers that prevent this sort of patience and forbearance? That, that third question, the middle question there, is what I want to focus on. How can we cultivate in our own hearts a willingness to be wrong. So once you guys talk about those at tables for a little while, we'll come back and we'll talk about that question specifically. So be thinking about answers to that question in particular that we can talk about as a full group. So take five minutes or so, dig into those questions together, and we'll, uh, we'll loop back in a few. So go ahead. All right. So that, hopefully you guys had some good discussion. I wanted to just hear what your guys' thoughts were on that last question on how we can cultivate in our own hearts a willingness to be wronged. What do you guys think about that? What were some thoughts you had on that question specifically? Yeah, absolutely. Humility and being wronged work together, but pride and being wronged not going to happen. Yeah. Anyone else? Some additional thoughts on this one? Gwen's being pointed at. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The example of Christ in, in his earthly life, but then I think also a huge one we were talking about a little bit at this table, just forgiveness our forgiveness of others, our willingness to be wronged by others flows from a recognition of how much we've wronged God and how much we've been forgiven. I mean, without, like, that is an infinite well to draw from that's going to fuel our forgiveness and our willingness to be wronged when we realize just how much we've been forgiven. So I think that's just huge. So let's uh, roll on into the works of the flesh, verses 9 through 11. Talks about uh, just picking up in verse 8, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and that word wrong is connected to the word in verse 9, um, the unrighteous or those, those that wrong. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is a wonderful reminder in verse 11. I want to just highlight a parallel passage that helps show that categorically these things that Paul's talking about are works of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19 through 21, immediately before the passage about the fruit of the Spirit, it's talking about the fruits of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh, the works of the flesh. won't read that whole passage, but those are there now, and it very closely um, parallels what we just read in 1 Corinthians. One thing to note here, verse 9, self-deception is a real danger that must be guarded against. That's why there's so many commands in Scripture, don't be deceived, don't be deceived. But interestingly, it's a command to not have something happen to you because 
being deceived is, is a passive activity. It's something that happens to you. So it's, a, it's really a command to be on guard, commands to be on the defensive. We'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to the application section at the very end of today. But I want to just read a, a quote from MacArthur here. People are, who are characterized by these iniquities listed in this passage are not saved. And that sounds heavy. Of course it is. But a life characterized by these things, people who are characterized by these iniquities are not saved. While believers can and do commit these sins, they do not characterize them as an unbroken life pattern. It's incredibly important to see that, realize that, to realize that these are the sorts of things that will not characterize, be fundamental to the life of a believer. Uh, and again, MacArthur's comment admits and points to the fact that, yes, a believer may stumble in these areas, but this is not going to be a pattern. So I think that's key to realize. I mean, that passage in Galatians 5 where you see the, the fruits of the flesh, the fruits of the Spirit, in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, there's days when fruits of the Spirit don't, don't appear as readily in my life as they should. There's days in which fruits of the flesh appear in my life as they shouldn't. But what's characteristic of my life? What's the normal pattern of sanctification that is observable in a transformed life? In a life that's, as verse 11 says, a life that's washed, a life that's sanctified, a life that's justified. And I think that's the, the key thing to realize that as you've been positionally made holy and righteous by your justification, by faith in Christ, so you see an increasing pattern of holiness in your life. It doesn't mean you wake up one morning and just you're perfect, but it means no longer are these things what's characterizing your life. And a question to, to loop back to at the end is why does verse 11, what does verse 11 teach us about the transforming power of the gospel? But I want to turn into talking about verses 12 through 20. And it, this, this passage, from what I see, unpacks 14 truths for combating sexual sin. 14 truths for combating sexual sin. Some of these are probably going to hit you like, wow, that's incredibly relevant, immediately helpful. Some of these are going to be like, huh, I didn't necessarily see how that would be useful for fighting sexual sin. But these are the things that Paul points to to help promote holiness, purity, honorable conduct within the Corinthian church. So from these verses, Paul returns to a more general treatment of sexual sin. He's already addressed the specific case of 1 Corinthians 5, but now he zooms out and addresses some of the underlying beliefs that undergird someone's entanglement in sexual sin. In many ways, and I'll say this a couple times, in many ways, the battle against sexual sin is a battle to believe true and right things and then to remember those truths amidst temptations of the flesh. Say that again. In many ways, the battle against sexual sin is a battle to believe true and right things. That's why Paul brings all this truth to the table, because in the midst of sexual temptation, we are believing lies. So it's a battle to believe the truth, believe right things, and then to remember those truths amidst temptations of the flesh. And here Paul provides a great deal of truth to combat sexual sin. So the first truth, unbiblical ideas, slogans, and phrases do not make sin okay. Unbiblical slogans, phrases, uh, ideas, slogans, and phrases do not make sin okay. Uh, with that, I'm going to read the, the passage before I unpack that. So verses 12 through 20, all things are lawful for me, quote, 
but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or you, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So this first slogan that they use, all things are lawful for me. That's what they were saying. All things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. The Corinthians had adapted a slogan, a phrase that they had then used to support immoral actions. The same thing happens today. Galatians 5.18 and 5.13 kind of point to the sort of thing that they might have latched onto and ripped out of context. Paul writes, for if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So see, look, we're no longer under the law. We're under the Spirit. Therefore, I'm not under the law. I can do whatever I want. Wrong. That slogan doesn't work. There was either a cultural quotation that they were twisting or maybe something that Paul had said that they were using. But the point is, they were, they were twisting truth. And believers that indeed are not under the Mosaic Covenant and not under the Mosaic law, that doesn't mean that they're not underneath God's authority. Whatever the case, they twisted this statement to be a basically get-out-of-judgment-free card. And again, we're talking about the context of judgment. Believers should be kind of observing things in each other's lives and saying, hey, man, what's going on here? And they're saying, ah, all things are lawful for me, so you can't judge me here. That slogan doesn't make sin okay. Second truth, sexual sin does nothing to help holiness. Sexual sin does nothing to help holiness. Okay, he, he includes the quote in verse 12 and says, but not all things are helpful. No longer being under the Mosaic law, no longer being under the Mosaic law was not and is not a license to quote unquote do whatever. Paul makes it very clear that though we are not saved by keeping the law, we are still expected to seek to honor the Lord with our lives. Furthermore, whether or not something is permissible is not the only metric for its worth. We must routinely ask, will this help me grow in my walk with Christ? Will this promote holiness in my life? Thirdly, sexual immorality invites life-dominating sin entanglement. It invites life-dominating sin entanglement. Paul says, I will not be dominated by anything. And these are things, even, even things that are morally neutral, which sexual immorality is not morally neutral, but even things that are morally neutral, you can ask this question of, does it help me in holiness? And does it tend to dominating my life? Don't go there then. Are you resolved to have nothing dominate your life except the lordship of Christ? That should be what we're resolved 
to have dominate our life is Christ. Fourthly, God has intentional design and right standards for sexuality. Verse 13, food's meant for the stomach, stomach for food. This is another phrase, biological need, biological uh, solution. There we go, boom, just, it's that simple. Not only did the Corinthians have their all things are lawful slogan, they also had a saying that was used specifically to justify sexually immoral actions. Food for the stomach, stomach for food. That was their phrase, that's what they used to justify immorality. From this analogy, they justified using their physical body for anything and everything that was physical, including anything sexual. They had reduced sexuality to a mere biological and physical reality like food and the stomach. Paul helps the Corinthians to realize that there is a categorical difference between our body's consumption of food and the sexual relationship. They were believing two major lies. And they were believing these two major lies to justify this faulty idea. They believed, one, that God only cares about the spiritual part of my life, wrong, and two, that my physical actions do not impact my spiritual health, wrong. Fifth, lie, or fifth truth, our bodies belong to God. Our bodies belong to God. Second half of verse 13, the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. They failed to realize God's rule over all things. God designed our bodies for a purpose. They are for him. The body was not created for sexual immorality. It was created to honor God. Next, our future bodily resurrection highlights the importance of our bodies. Our future bodily resurrection, that we will be raised from the dead, highlights the importance of our bodies. Verse 14, and God raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Two resurrections really are being talked about here. Christ's resurrection that's already happened and our resurrection yet to come. The resurrection has implications for how we think about our bodies. First, that Christ was resurrected and exists now in a physical though glorified body. Christ is in a body. We have to realize that. He, he rose from the dead and he exists in bodily form. That reality demonstrates that a disembodied spiritual existence is not somehow more holy than being in a body. Does that make sense? You re realize how we can somehow, we can somehow shift into thinking that like, oh, the, the soul, like the spiritual existence eternally, that's going to be what's holy, but like my body, eh. That's what's meant to be addressed here is our, our bodies are going to be raised from the dead. There's going to be a resurrection. Our bodies are going to be different, suited for eternity, but our bodily existence is still a part of God's design. And that our own bodies will be resurrected shows that our bodies are not somehow inherently evil. We're apt to get trip, tri tripped up here because of misunderstanding how the scripture, scriptures speak about flesh. I want to just talk about this for a second. As you study scripture, note that there's two different words used. There's body and there's flesh, and those are used in slightly different ways. They're different, and one typically refers to the physical aspect of us, our body. It's just with the fact that we are physical material. But it also, the, the word flesh can refer to the indwelling sinful desires that are not yet mortified by the Spirit. And sometimes we kind of overlap those ideas and think body equals fleshly evil, spirit equals holy good. 
And that's not the way Scripture explains our bodily and physical existence. It's, it's good that we exist physically. It was God's design. The next truth that confronts sexual immorality, we are members of Christ's body. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Each believer is vitally and integrally connected to Jesus Christ and is consequently a member of his body. First, uh, the next one, next truth. The sexual relationship designed for the husband and wife is deeply significant. Verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Sexual activity with anyone but your spouse makes a mockery of God's design for marriage and wickedly imitates the intimacy that God intended to be a gift given to the married couple. It tries to imitate something that God designed for the husband and wife, and it does not, does not honor the Lord. Genesis uh, 2, 24 creation account. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That hold fast language is the same idea here of being joined to. Hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's a tragic mockery to try and seek that sort of relationship outside of God's intended design in marriage. And Paul adds to that another layer that not only is that a a wicked imitation of something that's meant to be good, beautiful, and true, he then also adds that the one spirit union, the one spirit union we have with Christ is profound. He's just talked about the one flesh relationship between a husband and wife that is imitated when a a man and a prostitute join bodies, essentially. That's wickedly imitated, but then he says in verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So talking about the one flesh union in marriage, but then turning and talking about the one spirit union we have with Christ, which really highlights the profound unity we have with Christ. The believer is spiritually united with Christ. That's what makes sexual immorality so heinous. The spiritual union we have with Christ is a deep bond. Next truth we need for fighting sexual immorality is that we need to actively urgently and continually flee sexual sin. Actively, urgently, and continually flee sexual sin. This is active. Do something to get away from this sin. Run, flee, get away from the temptation. Get away from the sin. Put distance between you and the opportunity to indulge the flesh. I didn't include this in my notes here, but that idea of flee is... From where we get our English word, it's fugite. It's where we get our term a fugitive, someone who's on the run. So the, the call to flee is, is that, that same concept, be on the run. Like you think of a fugitive that's just running from someone like that's chasing them down. That's basically the continual lifestyle that we're supposed to have, fleeing, getting as much distance as we can between us and sins. It's Joseph and Potiphar's wife. It's Joseph saying, no, far be it from me. I'm out of here. I'm running. I'm gone. Not oh, there's sexual temptation here, but I'll just, I'll stick around and see what happens. I'll probably be fine. That's not fleeing. Get away, get distance, put up guardrails, get accountability, 
It's active. Do something. It's also urgent. This command must not be delayed or deferred. And it's present and ongoing. Continually be on guard and fleeing sin. This is not a once and done thing. This isn't a, I, I fled sin yesterday, therefore today I'm fine. It's an active, present command meant to be lived out every day. Next, sexual sin causes personal harm. Sexual sin causes personal harm. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual sin is uniquely physically destructive and harmful against one's own body. The only safe sex is sex with God's blessing between the husband and wife. The only safe sex is sex with God's blessing. Sex outside of marriage, because it's sexual immorality, as verse 18 says, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. It's self-harm. Next, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Next truth, to be indwelt, uh, next truth to be embraced, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, or do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Read the Old Testament and you'll see how much God cares about the cleanliness and the holiness of his temple. As believers, we are God's temple, which should greatly elevate our sense of desire for personal holiness. Next truth, our salvation was costly. Our salvation was costly. In the midst of sexual temptation, you must consider this reality. Our salvation was costly. Verse 20, you were bought with a price. What was the price for your salvation? How much did God pay for you to redeem you from your sin? Acts 20, 28, Paul exhorting the elders in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. God's blood was shed for you so that you could be his possession, set apart for his purposes and holy before him. The cost of our salvation should fire our zeal. The cost of our salvation should fire our zeal to live a life of holiness. And then last truth to embrace. The ultimate priority of our lives should be to glorify God. The ultimate priority of our lives should be to glorify God. Verse 20, the last part. So glorify God in your body. God saved us, paid the penalty for our sin, and set us free from slavery, slavery to immorality so that we could freely honor him with our lives. We're again, free to be holy. So practical imperatives as we wrap up today. In this chapter, the apostle offers three straightforward commands that deserve attention. There's three command verbs in this passage, things telling you to do something. That is, do not be deceived, flee sexual immorality, and honor God with your body. Of all these commands, we have to note that they're plural. They're, they're directed to, to y'all, not just individual, which means it, it implies that these instructions will be carried out in fellowship with other believers. We ought not seek to privatize our Christian walk. We need others around us who are helping us walk aligned with God's word in ways. So the first, do not be deceived. We already talked about that term a little bit, fugite. It's a command to not let something, oh, sorry, that, uh, different, different word. That's the next word. Uh, uh, the, the, the command to not be deceived. It's a, it's a command to not let something happen 
to you. Again, no one wakes up one morning and just says, I'm going to be deceived today. Deception is a passive activity. It happens when we fail to keep our guard up, think critically, and engage Scripture regularly. Deception happens incrementally, just one little piece at a time, and almost imperceptibly. And by, ne- by definition, when someone is deceived, they do not think they're deceived. That's the scary reality of deception. Fighter pilots, really any pilot, or scuba divers, or mountain climbers, but I'm specifically thinking of fighter pilots. They're trained, when, when they're going through pilot training, to recognize the effects of hypoxia. Hypoxia is what happens when your body doesn't get enough oxygen. And there's really four phases to hypoxia. The first one is relatively minor, and it's just that your eyes, and we don't know this obviously, but our eyes consume a lot of oxygen when they're in dark mode, basically. When it's really dark and kind of picking up a lot of, trying to pick up a little bit of light at night, dark mode basically is the first thing to go when someone's low on oxygen. So that's obviously dangerous for a pilot. The first thing that's impaired, eyesight, problematic. But it's not that noticeable because all the lights in the cabin, they can see just fine. Everything that's, that's bright, they're seeing fine. But the dark stuff, not seeing it anymore. Second phase, they just start to take a little bit, a little bit deeper breaths, a little bit breathing a little bit more rapidly. No physical effects noticed yet. You're just, your body's trying to catch up on the lack of oxygen. Third phase, fingernails turn blue. Huh. Everything kind of feels a little bit goofy. I feel happy. Everything's fine. Maybe I have a little bit of a headache. I'm not, I'm not thinking as clearly. My fingers move a little bit slower. Man, this is weird. Third phase. Fourth phase. Unconscious. Dead. That's how it happens. And I think in a very similar sense, that it happens just so imperceptibly. This is, I saw a little bit of forewarnings, but ah, that's fine. Decepi- deception happens in our lives very similarly because it's so serious and we don't notice it when it's happening. So we have to be on guard. We have to not be deceived. That's the first imperative from this passage as we apply these things. Second imperative, flee sin. We already talked about it. Be on the run. This is not a once-and-done activity. This is a command with ongoing implications. You have to be fleeing sin. Not, I fled sin the other day. It's, how am I going to flee sin today? And then thirdly, from verse 20, glorify God in your body. The Lord, sorry, the body you have been given, think about this, the body you have been given is the vessel, not a vessel, it is the vessel which you have been given to serve the Lord and bring him honor and glory. Your body is not a morally neutral piece of high-tech physical machinery. Certainly the physical body is a miraculous complex of incredibly designed systems. The body is amazing. But more than that, your body is the means God has given you to honor him. Think about the ways you use your body to honor God. You use your ears to listen to a hurting friend and show that you care and love them. You use your hands to serve others in practical ways. You use your eyes to read God's word and to know him. You use your voice to sing praises to God and speak true things about him to others. You use your brain to thoughtfully pray to God. You use your feet. You used your feet even to walk into this room, into this building today, to be around other believers and to hear the word of God. Your body is the means God has given you to exist here on earth 
and as the means you have to honor him with your life here. A recognition of the desire to glorify God with your body is a huge application point from this morning. A couple discussion questions to think through, and we'll, we'll close with those just talking through them. First, from the list of 14 truths for combating sexual sin, which do you find particularly helpful to be personally mindful of? And are there other verses which come to mind? Second, how are the three imperatives, the commands that we just talked about, don't be deceived, flee sexual immorality, glorify God in your body, how are those things interrelated and connected? And how do those things pattern the put off, be renewed in your mind, and put on pattern of Ephesians 4? And then what happens when any one of those three commands are neglected or ignored? And then lastly, what's one point from this passage that has been particularly impactful or challenging for you this morning? And then just in prep for next week, those are some questions that you could be thinking about and uh, that'll help prepare us for a discussion of um, marriage, singleness, and uh, a little bit on dating there and also some divorce stuff. So if you guys could read that passage ahead of time, that'll be really helpful. I'll close with some prayer and you guys can just discuss those questions at tables and be dismissed after. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again for just the reminder we have this morning to be on guard to be not allowing ourselves to be deceived, to be actively basking in your word, to be actively fleeing sin and continually running from its traces in our lives. And also, Lord, to be glorifying you with our bodies. Help us to consider thoughtfully how we can steward the vessels you've given us for this time here on earth to honor you and glorify you in our physical existence. Lord, we are, we are amazed at our own um, our own complexity and the fact that you designed us and there's just still so much to figure out about ourselves even just biological sciences have not yet plumbed the depths of how we even survive and live but that just speaks to you as a mighty mighty god and a mighty creator if the creature is this remarkable lord so help us to steward the bodies you've given us and, and use them to honor you bless the discussion uh, remaining this, this morning and uh, use it for your glory it's in christ's name we pray amen Feel free to discuss those questions at your tables.